Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, and it's my pleasure to be introducing you to the robotics community in Australia. Just a little bit of background for those of you who don't know, I've recently joined Robotics Australia Group as their CEO. Robotics Australia Group is a not-for-profit organisation that promotes, connects and forms on behalf of the robotics community in Australia. Today, my guest is Ben Brayford. Ben is currently serving as CEO of Solar Energy Robotics. He drives the design and manufacturing of cutting-edge robotic technology for cleaning solar PV arrays in the mining sector. His strategic vision includes expanding into new overseas markets and the emerging solar industry. Ben, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Nikki. It's a real privilege to be here and today I'm hoping to share some of my experiences and um, hopefully the listeners can learn from them. Super. And talking about listening, um, the first thing that you can clarify is PV arrays because it's not a term that everyone would be familiar with. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I guess you get used to using acronyms, but it's photovoltaic. It's basically a solar panel. And they use on domestic applications, on houses. You see them coming up everywhere in our lives, um, particularly in the commercial sector and the utility scale solar farms are popping up. Um, there's all sorts of niches within that industry. And um, yeah, so it's an emerging, booming global industry that um, everyone's jumping on board. Super. Let's talk about the work that Solar Energy Robotics does. Dusk is, of course, a huge risk to mine production, and uh, the mining industry is increasingly relying on solar power as the most effective power supply for off-grid infrastructure. So uh, expand a little bit on this first, please. Sure. Um, so we manufacture um, and supply solar panel cleaners, and the the need for cleaning is very much around the levels of dust in the environment. So we're not just working in the mining sector, but we've found a value proposition of product market fit in the mining sector in these early stages of product development and where we're at as a company growth uh, foundations, a startup type of phase. And the mining sector has obviously got um, big dust issues in the dry, arid regions of the world, and particularly in Australia and particularly in the northwest of Australia. Um, it's a lucrative industry, so uh, critical infrastructure is often powered by solar panels, and um, and so it's critical to mine production in some cases, not always, but sometimes. And um, even just the cost of labour in Australia to go out and manually clean the panels is is high, and we really value safety and autonomy. So um, we've got a high value product that's very reliable. We're selling to the Australian mining sector at the moment, um, but our plans are much bigger than that. We are looking at the solar industry as a whole, developing new products and possible export as well. Um, so, is, yeah. it, is so. this a bespoke uh, solution that you make, or are all, all solar panels the same size, or do you go in and you can adjust your, your cleaning product? Um, so, the product was initially developed to clean uh, uh, single rows of solar panels. So um, essentially the product market fit in the Australian mining sector actually is small solar arrays that are powering off-grid infrastructure, not so much solar farms. So not tiny solar arrays that are powering lights, more sort of row-long um, solar arrays that are powering communication systems kilometres from the office. So critical infrastructure. Um, 
So, like I said before, the solar industry is very diverse and other products that are needed in the solar industry as a whole are ones that clean tiny solar panels in the mining sector, um, such as lights and boom gates and things like that. So it'll be a smaller product to what we have at the moment and then also a product that can clean solar farms and that requires movement of the autonomous robotics from row to row. Otherwise, it's too expensive to mount a cleaner on every row in most economies um, in the Middle East and other economies where the cost of labour or uh, the cost of the production of the robotics is lower, they do actually install a robotic cleaner on every single row at the moment. That's a huge maintenance of the robotics. So you're talking of thousands of robots per large farm. Um, so there is a need of robots from row to row, and that's autonomous ground vehicles type um, systems getting developed for that application. So it's very diverse. We're now we're talking about a niche, even in that wide market in that we're not talking about domestic applications. We're not even talking about commercial applications. We're talking about like utility resource sector type applications that are very high end. Why is it so important to keep the solar panels clean? So um, as dust accumulates, um, the product that we're selling at the moment, it's uh, designed for really dusty areas where they need to be cleaned once a month or more frequent. Um, lower than that, like once a quarter, once every six months, it, the value proposition doesn't quite stack up. They can get manual cleaning done or other methods, but where it is dusty or it's hard to get to, um, the as the solar panel gets soiling on it and levels of dust, the efficiency of the panel drops off, the batteries don't get charged so overnight the batteries run dry, which means that the critical infrastructure drops out and that can lead to a mine-site production loss. That's in the mine sector. Um, in the solar industry as a whole, obviously the level of dust will drop efficiency and even reductions to 5 and 10% across the solar farm is significant with um, the um, loss the loss efficiency of all the resources required to install a solar farm. We need to optimise the return on the investment and the return on the resources put into those solar farms. So marginal gains with solar farms equals big dollars and um, big gains in the mining sector equals big dollars. So there's yeah, two different um, value propositions there that I keep referring to. One's the mining sector and one's the solar industry. They're very different markets. So if we're talking about um, people doing the cleaning, um, working in uh, temperatures exceeding 45 degrees, this seems like a no-brainer that you'd be using an automated mm -hmm. process or um, way to clean the solar panels. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, thanks. That's actually a good one because, you know, when we set out to build robotics, you think, often think things are a no-brainer, but it still takes time to convince people that it's a better way of doing things, especially in a risk-averse industry like the mining sector. Um, so it's taken, yes, it seems like a no-brainer, um, certainly cleaning, manually cleaning with a broom and a bucket of water, which is essentially the conventional method the mining sector is using still massively across the industry. Um, skilled labour, so they don't have like low-paid labour on mine sites. So you've got electrical contractors or um, supervisors, et cetera, going out and using a brush and a bucket of water in 45 or 35 to 45 degree heat, dusty conditions in remote areas, sometimes getting in sort of into the mine pit where it starts to affect production, especially on an autonomous mine site. Um, it is a no-brainer. 
Um, but there's still you need to be you need to weigh up those labour costs against your robotic costs because there is a uh, you know robotic service as well, especially when it's pretty reliable and to mind spec all the bells and whistles. Um, and it's taking time to educate the market. But as of like last week, BHP put out a video um, showing how critical our cleaners are to their production, and that was a massive milestone for us. It's taken a long time to get it through the media team, and that'd be brilliant. And they're very supportive, but they have constraints on how much they can endorse products. And even that video didn't reference us as a company, but they're very much where our products and they're very those mind sites that have our products are very, very happy with them and they're expanding. It's just um it is difficult to get on to new sites and it takes time and effort. Yeah, no brainer. It can once you're on, but um to get there is hard work. I think this is a general um consensus of robotics in Australia is educating our public and users and adopters do you think we've improved on on this or in uh, this well uh, i've been in the industry for 15 years now commercial robotics uh, commercializing robotics previously it was commercializing robotics services in the oil and gas sector underwater subsea rov and now it's obviously the emerging booming solar industry so it's super exciting now we're more got a more progressive ecosystem tech ecosystem and and capital um but back when I started GeoOceans, the subsea company, um, it was so hard to convince people to take divers out of the water and use your robotics. Um, again, uh, the people see the oil and gas sector as forward progressing, gone to the moon type tech. It's not. It's very conservative. They don't want to use new tech, especially when it's high risk. Um, so, you, yeah, you think you're taking divers out of the water on an FPSO that's 300 metres long, bouncing up and down in the splash zone. But no, it was, it's still hard work. Um, we're still, we're still um, finding that product market fit and and educating. And that's, you know, one of the major roles that we play as leaders in the robotics industry and the resources sector is educating all the stakeholders. And um, it takes time. And when you do pull it off, then you get competitors. So first to market, you don't want to be too early. They say the bleeding edge. And it's finding that balance and when the timing's right. And, and when you do get a gap, you've really got to hit it hard. And that's why... You look for investment. You can take the market as big as a chunk of the market as you can once um, you're getting it. Yeah. Please do send us the video um, in question for BHP and we'll put it in the show notes for our audience to mm -hmm. have a look at. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks. Yeah. So how has commercializing disruptive robotics in Australia and resources sector shaped you as a leader? Um, well, I guess uh, I took some leadership roles when I was young from a straight out of uni uh, management and, and I, I think I had people's skills in that I'm a pretty soft leader I don't I don't play a hard line and what I've found over the last 15 years in oil and gas and down mining um, people aren't motivated by money they, they certainly you're secure in that way and they stay with you to a certain extent they retain you but to really motivate them and get that extra 10 20 percent which you need as a as an entrepreneur and to promote that innovation you need to have an inclusive um, fun um, passionate Team. And the only way you recruit the best people is by creating an environment that, um, you know, gets the best out of them and, and they love coming to work because you'll find high achievers need to be pushed and they, well, they need to have those goals that stretch them and, and that can be exhausting for everyone. But ultimately, if you're not, if you, if you don't have the personality type that suits that, then you're really in the industry, um, either as a leader, as an entrepreneur, CEO, whatever your role is, but certainly. If you're an engineer and a lot of engineers don't have that 
um, that foresight, that innovation edge, and when you find them, they're absolute gold, and the other um, people that are valuable to the company are those who are willing to take on many roles, so an engineer that's willing to talk to a client and sell your products or a technician in the field who's doing the same. And um, those people, you really got to return. In, especially in Western Australia at the moment, they're in demand. They can work for anyone. They can work for the companies that have swimming pools on their rooftops. And if you're a small robotics company in Canning Vale, like us, then, you know, you've got to have an edge that attracts those good people. Um, you might get people for short periods, but you got to retain the team over long periods as well. So, you know, you want 10 years out of someone or longer to do that. I've, I've, so I guess to answer your question, it's about the people. And, and yeah, you know, I can't hear that home enough. It's just, just all about the people and my role is to support those people and, um, yeah, the ecosystem as well. And, and you certainly see that in Australia. There's a lot of buzz about um, soft skills and how do you create these work environments that people to make the most out of people. Definitely. I think it's all about attitude. If, if you've got the attitude right, um, you, you can have basic, uh, qualifications but I think if your attitude is one or that you're willing to learn um, you know the sky's the limit and I actually think that companies such as Seacon are when you apply for the job they they take all your experience and they put it into some sort of algorithm that spits out that says well you've applied for this job but you can actually apply for four others just based on what you've done. <laughs> Perfect um, yeah. the no-brainer no learning that I've had over the 15 years is Resist, resilience and persistence you've got to be strong and you got to push through uh that, that's kind of that's a no-brainer um so that's my i guess my response is more around the people but there's there's a lot of other traits and and certainly a lot of other skills that i've learned over that time and put me in a place i think of um being fairly stable during the hard times which is the most important as a leader as well yeah, the, the confidence that when people look up to you and like they can all feel the stress in the air and the tension, but the leader is stable and just goes, put your head down and just get on with the work at hand. Yeah, there's nothing more disruptive than a burnt out leader. Um, yeah. and, then, and then they leave the business and other people leave the business. It doesn't help anyone working six hours a week when you've got a family at home and all the other, um, not distractions, but priorities, I guess, in the community as well. So it's important to have that work-life balance. Yeah, that's actually quite an important point before we move on to the next one, because if you look at a burnt out leader and they probably typically stay a year longer than they should and the boards probably typically keep them on a year longer than they should before just saying, listen, you know, it's time for you to move on. So it's a pretty tough call for people to go, I'm not being... Um, I'm not being effective as a leader anymore. And I really, I'm doing a disservice to the company because I'm actually costing them money. Yeah. And the flip side to that is the board's job is to help the leader to get through that. And, and they need to, they should, because the leaders in the right mindset are so valuable. But um, you give it a you give, you give it a try for a certain period of time. And then if they're not taking on the advice and not the right fit, then you're right. You should fire fast and move on. Yeah, that's it. So what were your biggest challenges in the seed stage and how did you overcome them? Um, well, probably obviously funding, especially robotics, it's expensive. And um, <clears throat> back in 15 years ago, there wasn't any sort of funding venture kind of thing. Um, yeah, so funding, and <laughs> that's probably not a surprise. That's my number one. And the way we overcome it in West Australia is like an ideal scenario. I mean, 15 years ago, oil and gas and mining were boom, booming. There was a lot of work around. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of opportunity out there to bring in, you know, diverse technology because it was also getting more safety conscious. 
and um, and and it's actually kind of repeated now in solar energy robotics in that there's such a demand for solar in the wind sector that um, and we were well positioned Queen that we're already on site. We have electrical contractors on site through IES, our parent company. Um, that it's we're we're funded through revenue. We're funded at a positive cash flow and. That's the best course of funding because you don't get the dilution, so shareholders get better returns. Um, but also, you keep control and you're not distracted trying to look for funding. That's one of the luxuries that I've got at the moment. It's a positive cash flow. We are for funding, we're out hunting for clients. And also, the speed of development when you're working with clients rather than doing an RD and then it's market too late, you got to bring, do your best bootstrap and bring to market as early as you can. Um, so, yeah, it's created that. that um, Fortunate opportunity we've had in what we have and can always will have in Perth for the right people is we have access to market. Yeah, it's difficult to get in. Um, and that's why those early stages of product market fit assessment and value proposition are really important. Um, you got to find your champions within you. But once you do, it, it, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. And that's the, um, that I'll repeat that to myself. Throughout my life, <laughs> and always will. But you don't. You, the the uh, whole idea of just coming in and someone gives it purchase order an enterprise agreement to work across the mining sector. What well, hasn't happened to me ever? It's a grind, and um, so it's only through early stages, and then you get to a certain stage, and hopefully you get yourself in a position for growth. I'm talking about the startup phase, and you get to growth, and that's it. You go to your scaling phase, and things open up, and you got lots of case studies, and you got product that's refined in the early stages. Um, getting revenue and projects to fund it rather than wasting too much time looking for investment. Um, we've also, myself personally, in the organisation I've been involved, been very well supported by the government grants. Um, we're very country of even 15 years ago, Commercialisation Australia was called now. Now it's called Accelerating Commercialisation, going to the National Reconstruction Fund um, to new governments bringing in similar programs. Yeah, been immensely supported, not just financially, but also through, the, through their mentoring type um, system they always implement with the grants, the support structure and the branding and the uh, yeah, everything else you get out of those grants. So couldn't have done it without them. That's helped with funding, certainly in the stages. Well, congratulations. I like the positive cash flows. Um, th- that's, a, that's always a good, warm, fuzzy place to be in that you're hunting um, for clients and you're not hunting for, for funds to survive. Mm. Yeah, that's what they teach you in the startup world if you can get if you can fund your company through revenue, then that's the ideal um, yep. scenario. Yeah. So how's the robotics ecosystem changed in WA? Um, and jet more broadly speaking, the world over in the past 15 years um, since founding Geo Oceans in Perth? Um, yeah, there's been black and white changes, I reckon. Uh, 15 years ago, maybe I was, I was younger and less experienced at networking. I wasn't aware of what was happening. But outside the accelerating commercialization type programs which we're involved in. I didn't actually understand the ecosystem. Um, and and I think I think it's actually because it didn't exist or certainly it was in its infancy. Um, and university support was there. We were um, they were helping us as much as they could. But um, so last year, this time last year or May last year, I exited GeoOceans, the company I founded, the subsea company. And I had a bit of time just uh, doing director training and other things, but I also reached out to startup and entrepreneurial networks. And I walked into Curtin Uni and they just rolled out the red carpet for me. They said, oh, you're an entrepreneur, you're an executive, come, come with us. And they took me into these beautiful buildings and they introduced me to really awesome people. They put me through the, the ignition program on a scholarship without even 
really putting in an application because it was really last minute. But they just they said yes before they even asked, what do you need? And that's what we need as entrepreneurs. And then since then, at that point, I wasn't with Sol Andrew Robotics. I got this role. And I'm now working with Curtin Uni um, engineering team and the entrepreneur team still. And that continues. And they were hosting um, this REIT program at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They come over from Boston. There was a massive event. The whole Woodside auditorium was full. Um, so the ecosystem, that's the research centre, but the government as well. You know, we've got Minister Shizik at a federal level and uh, Minister Dawson here in Western Australia. Like those two, as personality types, you couldn't help hope for better people. And they're so hardworking, they've huge portfolios, but they love technology. They see it as a real growth centre, uh, really supportive. Um, and then we've got our clients like BHP putting up that video. They know, and every you see every time the CEOs of BHP and Rio you know, resources, etc. They get up on stage and talking about how they need local tech companies to help them in the energy transition and the, and the growth sector of the, um, you know, the new mineral deposits and, thing, and the growth of the mining sector and the oil and gas is similar. So um, we're just so fortunate that this ecosystem um, across Australia, but obviously I'm more experienced here in Australia. Um, it's just amazing. And and, and everyone's sort of taken a leap of faith because we've had some successful startups come out of WA, but not as many as they should have been. And, and the mining sector and resource sector are global and, and everyone's mess ignited. The not-for-profits, Ozmine, um, Core Innovation Hub in Western Australia, they're, they're kind of leaps of faith in a way because um, we haven't got the returns on the technology we're developing in Australia as much as we should have in that sector. They, uh, it's been recognised. Everyone's pulling in the right direction. I have a role in that. Yeah, as an entrepreneur, um, everyone you have a role in it in you know, running these podcasts, and there's a uh, there's a wave of momentum, and I'm not sure we'll ever get to Silicon Valley tech scene. Sort of, well, we won't, but you know, obviously that's there's a there's a big opportunity there, and uh, in those global markets, they're very lucrative, and um, so the support structure around the ecosystem is what I've noticed has changed more well, dramatically well, than think- anything else. Congratulations to you because I think um, Curtin University would have been the winner in this because, you know, to guide um, entrepreneurs, and I want to say youngsters, but generally speaking, actually entrepreneurs that start their own business in Australia are around 43 years old. So um, it attracts slightly older people. But if you are in the younger category, it's very good to have someone who's actually gone through everything to give you some advice you know the stress levels number one starting your own company are enormous you know you have to look after your mental health um, and well-being you need to know when your runway financial runway don't mortgage your house unless you think you're on an absolute uh, unicorn but you know we all think we're on a unicorn and then sadly we're not so there are lots of factors that you have to I was in an ecosystem that, you know, I was chatting to a lot of um, when I was still running Exaptic and I would talk to founders and I'd go, you know, what's your runway? How, how much how much cash have you burned? Like how, how long can you sustain yourself? And it's a very tough call to go, listen, I think I'm at the end of my tether and, you know, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've, I've been fortunate in that the two horses I've backed um, have at least progressed to the stages I'm happy to take them to and I'd say successful. Certainly, it's been validated as well that they are successes. Um, they're kind of, well, I thought they were no-brainers. Being young when I stepped down at GeoOcean certainly helped, but now I carry quite a lot of experience in networks, which helps the current scenario I'm in. And, um, yeah, I stay fit and healthy and balance my work-life balance. Just dropped the kids to school now. 
um, simply because I, in my role, I think I might be an entrepreneur for life and um, and a mentor as well in my later years. But I, I think I've got another twenty years left, which puts me into my you know mid sixties and seventies. So I've got to stay fit and healthy because I see this as a marathon, and it's so easy to burn yourself out in this role as a CEO and entrepreneur. Oh, definitely. You know, I've spoken to other people that. Uh, early stage no-brainer to work until 12 o'clock because there's just so much work but there does come a time where you go listen I actually have to put tools down at 5 30 go and run walk your dog do whatever it is to get that mental clarity because um, you know good to anyone and in fact the burnout um, you know it, it's got other associations you actually get sick quicker you know your you, just your physical health goes down like they're all sorts of little tripping points along the way yeah, well, I've seen burnout a few times and been close probably a couple of times myself. And it's pretty consistent with the way it comes about. And people don't know it happens over long periods, but they work hard, you know, work for 12 hours a day or longer, stay up and not thinking about it. And what happens is they use all their reserves and they, and they look good on the outside and they're fine, they're probably fit as well, maybe. But um, what, what happens is when the company hits some turmoil, which happens maybe every three to six months, something really significant that they need to have a fresh head to navigate, they don't have the capacity to deal with it. All the other things in their life start to come down on them at the same time because they're dropping something, their family or if they're single and young, then other factors, and they just can't deal with it. And that's no good for the business, it's no good for them, it's no good for community. So. At any state, you know, burnout is real. Um, it happens a lot. And if you if and then people leave and or you know get sick, like you said, or do something silly and um there's an accident, even worse, do they go to jail or whatever happens, or they go to alcohol and drug abuse. Um, seen all of them, and none of them are helpful. So uh, if you're bootstrapping and you know you've really got to be mindful of that as a board, the board needs to be mindful of that, they need to be a support structure. And most people are, and that's the great thing about where we're at here in Western Australia. We've got such good mentors out there. I've got access to some of the best people in the world. I can ring up any time, and that, that's what they'll tell me and remind me of it, and that's what I'll pass on to others as well. Um, and, and if you have a good work environment, you let the individual find their work-life balance. You can't, as a leader, set someone else's work-life balance. So you can motivate them by... You know, doing what we talked about before, building that inclusive work environment. Um, but ultimately, you can only coach and bring work-life balance and trust that they are doing their bit and doing everything to balance their community, their family life, their work balance as well. And that way you get 10, 20 years out of someone rather than one or two years or three years or five years. Yeah. Well, look, I think as an example, people always watch what their leaders do. So I... I I think it's um, extremely important for all of us that you actually walk your talk and, you know, as you say, um, five o'clock, you know, tools down, friends or whatever, your, your, you know, your ad hour work day that you've worked and if you've come in later, then, you know, you take those factors in consideration. And mm. um, I'd like to, of course, uh, invite our listeners at this point, please do connect with Ben on LinkedIn if you haven't already. And Ben, I'm going to be as presumptuous as to say if uh, someone needs a bit of mentoring out in West Australia, they can hit you up at this point in time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always up for a coffee or a beer after hours. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I welcome that. Super. Where do you see the greatest potential and opportunities to build the robotics industry in Australia? Um, so yeah, we can't compete on the uh, the lower 
cost robotics with the lower cost manufacturing centers around the world and we never will so we need to focus on the high value robotics high quality um so that's and and the resource sector obviously because we have you know one of the biggest per capita in the world we're very fortunate to have that and it's well identified from government industry that that's where we need to focus and, and it is a huge opportunity we've got the renewable sector emerging but a lot of it's imported from low cost centers the solar panels the um you know the wind turbines etc um it's it's a commoditized and they produce it in large numbers to bring the cost down but in those industries the renewable sector there's opportunities for robotics inspection reducing risk of working from heights or working remotely and um and optimizing the efficiency of those renewable the re- renewable resources that we're importing um so the renewable sector is one opportunity there's still um a lot of a long way to go with the oil and gas sector as well in the resource sector and mining obviously is going to go strength to strength for the mining sector um i don't know much about the medical sectors and, and other industries outside the resource sector i know a lot about the environment sector but yeah high value products for the resources sector is a big opportunity and it gets a lot of attention and a lot of support um, but certainly in my industry it's exciting yeah and and talking about uh industry in the ecosystem where do you see a group such as robotics australia group um uh coming into their own and helping the industry yeah so like i said before we all play our part and the robotics australia is that link that i have for people like myself have to lobby and, and guide the government um so that's i think the most power and i think that's why robotics is set up is to um, get the input from industry which is so important and then put it in a, a format that's digestible and has an impact to our, our policy makers and um and and also building networks uh raising exposure of, of organizations like we're doing now in this podcast um facilitation but i think the number one is that um the policy influencing the policy makers with their voice from the industry I couldn't agree with you more. I I personally think that um with the national robotic strategy Minister Huzik actually knew who to reach out to because of the work that was done in the 2018 roadmap by Dr. Suke and uh other stakeholders and collaborators and supporters and of course then the 2022 roadmap that she also um was instrumental in pulling together and releasing. Mm. Yeah, Sue's been uh, great for for us as well. She does everything she can for our with what she can um she's only one person just done a huge amount for the industry as you have as well anyone involved in robotics australia is you know the humbly taking us forward and that we do have those champions throughout the industry um and you know that's we will need to play a part of your side thank you talk to us about your industry awards that you won um you've got uh, five prestigious industry awards so including company of the year 2020 and export of the year 2022 Yeah, wow, well, shit, if I knew that question was coming, I actually have a trophy next door which I made up of my own going away present from Geoceans and I pulled the awards on it, but the ones we were most proud about were the subsea awards, so starting back when we first were founded in I think it was 2008, we won new innovator of the year and then it went to something a bit more progressive um emerging talent and it went to innovator of the year because they only have five in the subsea australia awards and eventually we won innovative new companies but then 2020 we won company of the year which absolutely surprises because we're up in as finalists against santos and bugro 
And we were like, you know, tiny startup in the rooms. Uh, we obviously we'd exported by that point and we'd grown, but that was um that was kind of where I just said, well, I feel like I've hit my milestones now. I can't get any better than that here. <laughs> um, and then export of the year, um, that 2022, that was a huge milestone because that was during COVID and we were trying to send people to Brazil and West Africa COVID and maybe that's what burnt me out in the end. Yeah. Um, it was hard work. It was, you know, a lot of issues. People in appearance didn't want to even, but um, yes, and then to get that at the end of it was, uh, you know, at least some sort of, uh, you know, milestone coming out of that really hard period for us. But yeah, um, that's today. Probably the awards we're most um, proud of. We in the early stages, it was Gold Gecko for an Environment Award here in Perth, and um, we were innovative of the year finalists at GeoOceans. Um, and we're actually today they announced we're actually innovative of the year finalists for Solar Energy Robotics. So hopefully this podcast doesn't come out before Minister Dawson says that today. <laughs> but yeah, the awards are important. Um, they acknowledge hard work for your team, but also give you some exposure as well. Well, congratulations. Kudos to you. And I I see this affirms um, my impression of you of a solid leader doing absolutely great things. Uh, thanks so much. You know, I'm just doing my part, as I keep saying, and I've uh, built an environment around me that I like to work in. And so kind of it's not that hard. Any, any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with, including where they can reach you? Uh, yeah, okay, so word of advice for leaders out there to manage that stress side of it. I work on a 90-10, theory, really complex challenges. You'll find 90% of the challenge is actually mundane, bread and butter stuff. So delegate that out to the people you have around you. Make most of your resources and focus your efforts on the 10%. Normally it's people, <laughs> again, so you can delegate more out. But um, a good leader will know where to focus that 10% very quickly. And that's, that's how you can manage your workload. Be careful not to go up to 11, 12, 13% this day now past your bedtime and that will lead to burnout. So that's that's how, kind of how I think about my role. Um, certainly uh, LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch with me and I'd welcome that. And uh, while I'm busy, um, I, my network's the most important thing. My, my most asset is my network. And that comes from people at high school um, all the way through to than my centaurs as well. So um, always up for a chat and happy to help where I can. Super. Ben, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, thanks, Nikki. Same goes and it's quite an honour and, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. And to our audience, wherever you are in the world, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Um, look after yourself, stay safe and have a fantastic day. Mm-hmm.